This episode contains graphic details of murder and other crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Not Always Polite. I hope you guys have had a great week so far. I have a big boy for you guys today, so I won't bore you with the weather or any of that jazz. I'm just going to get right into it. So today I'm telling the case of the murder of Carla and Alan Rutherford. So let's get on into it. Richard Rich Taylor is a 42-year-old phys ed teacher, and he also runs the library at Hess Street School in Hamilton. It is said, quote, the kids like him, the staff, not so much. He can be mean and money goes missing when he's around. On January 23rd, 2019, Richard is en route to pick up his daughter in Oakville at an after-school program. Quote, it was a regular day. At 3.25 p.m., 15 minutes into his drive, police cars box him in with their lights flashing. At this time, Detective Ben Adams, an officer Richard has become familiar with, approaches his door and asks him to turn off the car and step out. The detective directs Richard to put his hands behind his back. Quote, so right now you're under arrest for the first-degree murder of Carla and Alan Rutherford. Who are Carla and Alan Rutherford, you may be asking? Well, Carla is Richard's mother, and Alan is his stepfather. They were burned alive in their bedroom just six months earlier. So a little bit about Carla and Alan. Carla Holmes and Richard Taylor married in 1973 when they were both 19. They had their first son, Richard Scott Taylor, and he was born on February 15, 1976. And the second son, Chris, arrived on June 22, 1980. Carla was fun-loving and would do anything for her sons. Rick enjoyed a party and was proud of his boys. Carla grew up in St. Thomas and liked Labrador retrievers and always had them around. She and Al were known throughout their neighborhood for walking their chocolate labs, Kara and Cody. The parents divorced when the boys were in high school. As many of you, I'm sure, know that this is a difficult transition. But with time, Chris and his brother adjusted and their parents maintained an amicable relationship. Carla and the boys stayed living in their house on Greening Court. Eventually, Rick remarried and Carla fell in love with Al. He was a colleague of hers uh, in the laboratory at McMaster University Medical Center, where they were both medical technologists. They got married on May 25th, 2007. Al was extraordinarily fit and rarely sat still. He was a triathlete and did the Around the Bay Road Race multiple times and the Boston Marathon in a torrential downpour in his mid-50s. So, let's get to know Rich a little bit. Rich, his entire adult life, he lived paycheck to paycheck. He would ignore bills until he got final notices saying that his car was going to be repossessed or his cards would be deactivated. According to Rich, quote, living in debt and lying about it wasn't stressful. Having to come up with money at the last minute wasn't unusual. It wouldn't cause me to do anything drastic. By the mid-2000s, Rich was teaching at Billy Green Elementary, 
which is a JK to grade 8 school on Stony Creek Mountain. He coached teams and organized dances. He was known for being funny and fun, which the students seemed to like. In 2013, when the school he was teaching at received a $25,000 grant from the Heritage Green Community Trust, he created a program to use iPads and heart rate monitors to record students' workouts. But according to one of his former colleagues, his humor was sarcastic and often mean. He entertained his colleagues by making fun of parents. His arrogance frequently led to conflicts. Once, when a dance was canceled at the last minute, Rich emailed all the staff, blasting the principal for not appreciating his hard work. A teacher who traveled with him on a grade 8 trip to Montreal was horrified by his lack of concern when kids from another school tried to jump from balcony to balcony at their hotel. Rich was quoted as saying, quote, they aren't our kids, and laughed about it. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I think that's kind of funny. Anyways, not funny that the kids were doing that, but, like, the fact that he said that is kind of funny. Anyhow. Former colleagues of his also said that there was something especially odd about Rich when it came to money. They noticed this because he constantly complained about not having enough of it, even though he made like 90 grand a year. So when he got engaged to his then-girlfriend, Evangelina, I'm going to butcher this last name. I'm so sorry, Effie. She's Greek. She's going to kill me for this. But Papa Dimitriou, after several years of dating... He talked more about the financial implications of marriage than the romantic ones. Evangelina, Evangelia, sorry, Evangelia, she goes by Vange, so we're going to call her that from now on, comes from a close Greek family. She worked at Toronto Metropolitan University, which was formerly known as Ryerson University, for 24 years and is the coordinator of a group fitness and instructional program. When things got serious with Rich and Vange, she bought her own engagement ring. Quote, he fully admitted to me that he didn't have money, but I wasn't marrying him for his money. The pair got married on July 9, 2005 and settled in a semi-detached home they bought um, with the help of Rich's dad in Oakville. Almost immediately, Rich and Vange began getting deeper and deeper into debt. An IPSOS survey in 2019 showed 48% of Canadians were $200 away from insolvency. So it's not uncommon, but like Rich kind of took it to a different level. He maxed out his credit cards, but they didn't live extravagantly. They had no luxuries. They didn't appear to be on drugs, no gambling addictions or extramarital affairs. They just liked to shop. They bought unnecessary things even when they couldn't afford them. Their home was cluttered and said to be unkempt. In the kitchen, there was dozens of takeout menus, and they didn't cook at home. They did have two kids who they doted on. They threw lavish birthday parties with many gifts, and the children's dressers were full of clothes with the price tag still attached. Soon, Rich was paying thousands of bank fees due to bounced payments and overwithdrawal. He sometimes took as much um, out of the bank as $3,000 a month, carrying large amounts of cash because his cards didn't work. But Rich refused to admit that he was broke. He kept it a secret from everyone, especially Vange. So he basically manipulated Vange and completely kept her in the dark with all of this. Vange didn't pay any of the bills. She hadn't been to a bank in years and had no concept of their financial reality. At one point, she asked her husband to even put more money into their savings account, $5,000 a month. Though Vange earned $65,000 a year, she had no direct access to money. 
She went at least two years without a credit or debit card, repeatedly asking her husband, who, like I said, made 90 grand a year, to get them for her. He promised to, but never did. When debt collectors would call Vange at work to say that she owed $23,000 on a credit card she didn't know she had, Rich lied and told her that it was a scam. So when Rich was working at um, the Belly Green School, $1,800 was collected for a ski trip, and it disappeared from a filing cabinet. The money that was collected for Terry Fox runs also disappeared from teachers' desks. Another time, a teacher put a $50 LCBO gift card in an envelope and placed them in the custodian's mail slots for Christmas gifts. Later, the oh my gosh, I think I just had a stroke. Later, the custodians thanked the teacher for her $20 Tim Hortons gift cards. He even told his colleagues at another school that he had cancer and had to have surgery to remove it. His dad lent him $9,000 without knowing Rich was in debt. About 4000 of that was handed over just weeks before the fire. So this is kind of when things came to a head. The family had planned a trip to Greece. Rich claimed to have $1,000 of cash hidden away that he was going to use to pay for the food and drinks on the trip. In reality, that trip threatened to be the moment Rich's secret debt would be exposed. Vanja's parents bought the kids two tickets to Greece. Her sister paid for her tickets for Vanja and Rich, but they were supposed to pay her back. They were set to depart to Greece on July 11th, 2018, and once they landed, the rest of the month-long vacation would be at their own expense. So at this point, it's Saturday, July 7th. Rich and his two children leave their house in Oakville to drive to his mom and stepdad's place on Tranquil Greening Court in Dundas. The kids stayed there Wednesday and Thursday night with Grandma Carla and Papa Al. Now, the grandparents had agreed to take the children for another night or two so Vange and Rich could get ready for the trip. Al, who is 63 at this time, is out running a race when Rich arrives. Carla, 64, leads her son down to the basement stairs. He's a talented word worker, and she wants him to build shelves downstairs to display the model airplanes that Al builds. Somehow, maybe he tripped over one of the dogs, or maybe there was an ulterior motive behind this, but Rich falls down the stairs. He lands on his mother at the bottom, knocking her over. This is important, so remember this. Carla has a bruise on her leg, and Rich's right knee is cut. Because of this, Rich calls off the kid's sleepover. Rich goes to the ER using a crutch at 11.09 a.m. After x-rays and an exam, the doctor's report says, quote, bone and joints are normal, no effusion. He's sent home at 2.30 p.m. without treatment. Put a pin in this. This is importante. At 10.05 a.m., Sunday, July 8th, Chris, his brother, is at a cottage in Venland Falls, and he gets a text from his brother, Rich, with a photo of his knee. That afternoon, Rich and Vange shop for the trip. Rich texts his mom at 1.27 p.m. and lies to get money. He says, hey, mom, we are out doing some shopping, and our old accounts have been closed. We were supposed to get our new stuff yesterday, but you know what happened. Is there any way you can e-transfer me some money and I'll get it back to you tomorrow? We are up Shits Creek and Vange is quite stressed. Carla says, how much? Like 500? And he says, I sure hope that does it. I only had 150 with me. His mom responds, I need it back tomorrow or Tuesday. A bunch of bills come out next week. How do I do this? Rich instructs her on how to send the e-transfer and she again reminds him that she needs it back by Tuesday. At 8.03 that evening, 
Rich, Vange, and the kids walk into a shopper's drug mart near their house. He picks up a loofah and stuffs it in his pocket. At 8.19 p.m., sorry, he pays for other items, Tylenol, Pepto, and not the loofah. He had been caught shoplifting before, but the charges were dropped, but this time he gets away with it. Meanwhile, Al and Carla are in their backyard, sipping wine, listening to classical music. Carla goes upstairs and takes a sleeping pill and a pain pill, which then is later shown in her toxicology report. And she and Al go to bed together one last time. When the kids are in bed upstairs, Vange also takes a sleeping pill and turns in for the night. Everyone, I guess, takes sleeping pills in this story. I don't know. So... Everyone's in bed, but at a house on Cameron Avenue, which is around the corner from his parents' home, a security camera catches something odd around 3 a.m. A a shadowy figure on the sidewalk paces back and forth. The figure is lighting matches and throwing them on the ground. There was two burnt and two unburned matches later found being left behind. The unburned matches are wooden with bread tips. This is also important. Add that to your pin. The shadowy figure then sets off towards the Rutherford house. Minutes later, the same figure runs in the opposite direction. So, this is what's happening. Rich enters the front door at his parents' home around 3.30 a.m. The door is either unlocked, which is unlikely because Al was obsessed with his safety, or Rich used a key. The two chocolate labs are in their crates. One is in the kitchen and one is in the basement. Although they're rambunctious dogs, they aren't barkers, and particularly not with people they know. Obviously, they know him. Rich has been there many times. It was his childhood home. Rich walks past his childhood bedroom to Carla and Al's room at the back of the house. He stands in the doorway and pours a, quote, medium petroleum distillate, maybe lighter fluid or paint thinner, barbecue fluid or kerosene, onto the floor at the foot of the bed. It spreads out around and underneath it he then throws something likely a match into the flammable liquid the accelerant produces a vapor that instantly ignites when touched by a flame this creates a powerful quote flash fire and it burns fast and hot al is woken up and rushes through the fire and tries to get out the bedroom door but it's blocked al chooses another escape route jumping out the bedroom window dropping 10 feet to the ground Burned and bleeding, Al moves through the backyard and tries to re-enter the house to rescue Carla and the dogs. He attempts to get through the patio door, but it's locked. There will later be blood found at the back door. He tries another back door by smashing its window, but he can't get in that way either, and there would be blood found there too. His blood is also on the chain for the gate that leads to the front of the house. Al finally gets in the front door, but he can't reach Carla through the flames. He tries to use the phone, but drops it on the floor. His blood is also found on the phone. He grabs a big yellow flashlight and opens the patio door, leaving more blood. Kara, the upstairs dog, goes outside and ends up in a neighbor's yard. Cody, the dog that's downstairs, won't come up. Al goes to a kitchen cupboard, leaving more blood, and gets Kibble to coax the dog out, but she won't budge. She's later rescued by firefighters, and both dogs do survive. Trust me, I was worried about that too. So at this point, Al has third-degree burns over 95% of his body. He drags himself to the porch of his next-door neighbor's house, Karen Monk. He's half-naked, dripping in blood. His hair and mustache are singed. He pounds on the door four times, waking Karen, who's asleep on the couch. 
She gets up and looks out her front window but doesn't see anything. Seconds later, he bangs four more times and says, we need help. She opens the door at 3.40 a.m. and doesn't recognize the person sitting there slumped against her front porch. Karen, the person yells, we've been firebombed. Carla's still in the house. I don't think she's made it out. And obviously Karen now realizes who this is. Oh my God, it's Alan. She says, quote, he was melting. He was burned and his skin was falling off of him. Al continues to call for Carla and the dogs. Karen returns and tries to calm him down. Quote, do you want me to call someone for you? She asked. And he says, don't call Rich. He's the one that did this and he'll already know about it. At 3.46 a.m., Constable James Katzman is dispatched to assist the fire department on greening court. He says that he doesn't use his sirens because there's no cars on the road and he gets there in four minutes and is the first to arrive. Frantic neighbors in pajamas wave him into the court. He sees smoke coming from the Rutherford house and is called to Karen. Karen's calling him to her porch. He races to the Rutherford's front door and he doesn't try the handle thinking it might still be hot. Instead, he kicks in the door, which opens easily. Another officer arrives and they go to the back of the house, but the flames are worse there. Quote, he told me that the fire started in the bedroom. He said that the house was firebombed. He climbed out the window. He then said that he couldn't get his wife out, and he said that it was his wife's son, Rich, who did it. Um, in his notes, Detective Katzman puts quotation marks around Rich in his notes, quote, because he was a possible suspect. Eventually, the firefighters are able to get Carla out of the house. Unfortunately, she's pronounced dead at 4.10 a.m. and is taken directly to the morgue. Her cause of death is carbon monoxide poisoning and toxic gas inhalation from the chemicals released when common household items are burned. She has severe burns over 50 to 55% of her body. At the hospital, over a time period of about 45 minutes, Al uses his last words to tell six different people what happened. The story varies, but essentially he says the person responsible for the fire is called both Rich and Rick. He is identified as Carla's son, but also Al's son-in-law to the different people. Al is transferred to a bed in the burn unit, intubated, and put on life support. He never speaks again. He died around 3 p.m. on July 9th. His cause of death is acute thermal injuries and smoke inhalation, which leaves the detectives with a double homicide to solve. So, back to Rich. Between 4.04 a.m. and 4.41 a.m., Rich's iPhone 6S is on the move. It logs 1,800 walking steps. It seems that Rich left his phone at home when he went to set his mom's house on fire, but when he gets back, he's pacing around the house with it. Just after 8 a.m., Rich gets a call from his dad, and a friend from Dundas told him that there was a fire on Greening Court. Rick suggests that Rich should call their mo his mother. At 8.13, Rich texts his father, Hey, Dad, there's no answer at the house, and Mom isn't answering her phone. I'm scared. What should I do? On this day, it also happens to be Rich and Van's 13th wedding anniversary. So their father gets a hold of Chris. Rich has been calling him, but he won't answer because he's been asking him for money. The father tells him about the fire and that their mother's gone. Chris makes it home because he was at a cottage. And both boys are summoned to meet with detectives in Hamilton. He drives to Rich's home in Oakville. And a friend from Dundas meets them and drives Rich to Central Station, and Chris drives alone. 
Rich is then ushered into a room with Detective Michelle Moore, who is a homicide investigator. He's walking with a limp, remember, using a cane due to, due to his fall a few days prior. She tells him because of what Al said, he could be arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder, so he should be careful what he says. Rich goes ahead and talks anyways and hands over his cell phone for forensic data examination. Meanwhile, other detectives separately interview Chris and their father, Rick. They also give their phones to the police for examination. At the crime scene, looking for Rich's DNA won't help solve the crime since he's been in the house nearly all his life. That doesn't mean they aren't finding clues as to what happened, though. A forensic officer makes a discovery just inside the door on top of a short partition wall is a red and white box of wooden touch matches with red tips. Sound familiar? The box holds 40 and there are 39 matches inside. On July 12th at 2.13 p.m., Rich limps into Central Station with the aid of a cane. He later drives to Tim Hortons in Dundas, popping in for food and a drink with no cane or limp. He then drives to the TD Bank, going in and out without a cane or a limp, and see they, the same thing at the insurance office, and then back to the bank. So he's really just, like, limping whenever he wants. Outside of the van, outside of the bank, sorry, Rich paces beside his van while on the phone, and he's wearing shorts, and he has no brace or bandage on his knee. On July 13th, he is at Central Station again at 9.14 a.m. with Chris, and he limps and uses a cane. Two days later, at Carla and Al's funeral, with undercover cops in attendance, he uses a cane again. I'm sorry, I am no longer able to speak also. <laughs> After four days in the charred and gutted house, homicide detectives, forensic officers, and the office of the fire marshal conclude that Carla and Al were in fact murdered. The detectives execute 30, 39 judicial authorizations. These are orders approved by a justice of the peace, allowing the police to seize private information, such as banking and cell phone records, to conduct searches. So basically, it's a warrant. One warrant allows the team of officers to search Rick's house. While searching, they find a receipt for Shopper's Drug Mart that's time-stamped just eight hours before the murders. It leads police to obtain a security video of Rick shopping with his family. He's recorded shoplifting, but not limping. In a kitchen drawer, there is a red and white box of touch wooden matches with red tips. While the house is being demolished, because that's what happens when they're completely burnt to shit, the crew finds a fireproof safe. Inside the safe is a stack of papers, which include divorce and marriage documents and life insurance policies. There's also Carla's will that's dated July 12, 2007. Rich is the executor. Rich's inheritance may be less than what he anticipated. Carla left some of her estate to Al should he outlive her, which he did by about 11 hours. In Al's will, he left everything to his daughters. While the complex legalities are being sorted, some of the inheritance does trickle down. On the 18th of August, 2018, a check for $17,693 from Carla's life insurance company is deposited in Rick's account. This, not Rick, sorry, Rich, Rich's account. The same day, there is a $4,000 cash withdrawal. Within eight days, during the time he also receives a paycheck, the account is down to $10,000. By October, the account is once more in negative digits. Rich has spent all the money he has access to.
He dropped a good chunk on restaurants because he later explained that he is distraught over the murders. In addition to the life insurance money, Rich receives at least $21,723 transferred from a joint account with his brother, created to disperse the money from their mom's tax-free savings account. There are unexplained withdrawals from that account exceeding $10,000. The $6,800 in probate fees were to come from that account and are not paid. The lawyer hasn't received the check that Rich supposedly sent. And he says, quote, it must have been lost. A check is never found and Chris ends up paying the fees himself. So that's good. In the end, Rich and Chris each stand to inherit $420,000 from their mother. Bit by bit, homicide detectives explore all possibilities while building their cases against Rich. All evidence points to him. There are no other plausible suspects. Nothing indicates a stranger randomly torched the home in the middle of a middle-class retired couple's neighborhood with no enemies. Meanwhile, Rich continues to teach at Hess Street School. And this brings us back full circle to the day that Rich is arrested. He's driving towards home on January 23rd, 2019, when his minivan is stopped by police. Richard Scott Taylor is arrested for two counts of first-degree murder. He's handcuffed in the back of a police car, and Rich is concerned about his kids. He was on his way to pick them up after an ap- from their after-school program, and Vanch doesn't drive. Rick exercises his rights to speak with a lawyer, so the two detectives drive him to the station in silence. Rich is presented with heaps of financial documents indicating that he's broke and text messages and audio recordings showing he lied about it. I'm not going to go through all the details of the trial, but I'll leave a link to an article where you can read them if you'd like. There's also interrogation videos. I can leave links to those as well. But in summary, on June 17th at 2.50 p.m., after two days of deliberations, six men and six women of the jury find Richard Taylor guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. He is given an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. And that is the case of the murders of Carla and Al Rutherford. I hope you guys enjoyed. Um, Like I said, I'll leave links to everything in the show notes if you're interested. Basically, the trial just talks about everything I already talked about, so I didn't really feel like I needed to go over that again, but... Yeah, let me know what you guys think. Follow me on Instagram at notalwayspolite and leave me a review wherever you're listening. I hope you guys have a great week and I'll catch you guys next time. Bye.